Jim is wearing his heels. You know, when I was sat around that table as a 16-year-old, being told that my sister was never coming home again, mm. that, that is what I call real pain. Yeah. Uh, and once you've been there, you know, having someone saying you didn't play very well or you could have been, you could have judged something a bit better, I mean, really, is that going to hurt yeah, you? Absolutely. Don't be silly. I mean, the good news is that I'm here talking to you. Uh, the news of the world are no longer here. Mm. Um, and I think the world is a better place as a result of it. By making your fly half your captain, I think you're wasting a, a, a trump card. I'll probably have Farrell at 10. Really? Yeah. All right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Johnny babysitted you. Yeah, he did. Enzo. Yeah. Are you telling me not putting John here? No. Oh. On this episode, I'm joined by one of the greatest to have ever done it. This man needs no introduction. It's the wonderful Lawrence Delalio. Lol, let's get into it, mate. Yeah. Absolute pleasure hmm. having you here. For a bit weird because like I always say that you're the GOAT, the greatest of all time. <laughs> I wouldn't say that at Well, all. you know, like I've fanboyed you yeah. for a few years now, so to have you in this space, which is yeah. somewhere I'm more comfortable in, is amazing, mate. Well, so. listen, it's a great pleasure. Um, I've, I've been around a long time, and I know that much. I enjoyed my playing career, probably a little bit too much, but uh, I never really got into rugby because I wanted to be a rugby player. I don't think any of us did, to be honest with you. I mean, we don't regret it, but if 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 you look into most careers, you, you wouldn't necessarily sign up to getting your face smashed in every single week all over the world. I mean, it sounds quite glamorous. And I think a lot of people who watch rugby back in the day when we played, even before then, you know, there's something very exciting, hopefully about it, something very gladiatorial. It draws people in, despite what people imagine. It's um, it's a pretty friendly environment, pretty friendly atmosphere. But uh, there's also other sides to it as well. You have to deal with so many things in your playing career that not a lot of people deal with in their everyday lives. And it's all compacted into a very short space of time. So, yeah, listen, I, I had a great, very enjoyable playing career. Uh, loved it. Lots of highs, a few lows, and not much in between, really. Yeah. <laughs> Which might explain a lot. Well, I'm going to delve a bit deeper into that. But just going back to why I've always been a huge fan of yours... As we know, I played for Scotland for mm. 10 years, but I grew up at Leicester. Yeah. And watching England, I was in the in England Academy with the likes of Danny Cipriani, James Haskell, uh, Jim Skaysbrook from Bath, like a really good group. But watching England, what I remember from that is Jono, obviously Martin Johnson, yeah. and yourself singing the anthems, right? So the emotion that you wore on your face every time that you sang the national anthem. And this isn't saying that the English national anthem isn't that emotional but some people might say it is compared to other ones but I remember just watching you lol singing the anthem and I I don't know I was drawn to you and I shouldn't have been because I was at Leicester with Martin Corrie with John O'Neill back like is that the Latino in you that wore your emotion so much on your sleeve yeah quite possibly I mean I'm um my father's first generation Italian my mother was East End uh, Irish uh, descent so half Irish, half Italian makes you a very dangerous Englishman. Um, and the one thing that I was confused about, I mean, I'm very English, Anglo-Saxon. You look at me, you wouldn't say that I 
look Italian in any way. But Hell of a name, though. It's, yeah, Lorenzo Bruno Nero Delalio. Um, is that legit or not? Or has that been made no, up no, over no, the years? No, no, that is. no it is legit. Um, you, you're all slightly embarrassed by your name when you're younger because, um, you know, Tony Adams or John Smith sounds a, a bit more English, <laughs> doesn't it, really? But uh, obviously, you know, it is my name. And I was always a bit confused because English people, uh, British people, English people particularly, very conservative, maybe not outward displays of emotion. I used to get picked up from school. My mum and dad, well, never saw my dad that much because he was working, but my mum would, you know, there'd always be an embrace. There'd always be a, a quite um, a loving embrace. You know, two kisses on the cheek were very normal in the in the Delalio household years ago. So outward displays of emotion were never a problem for us. In fact, they were uh, they were encouraged. And yeah. I guess it goes back to the reasons why I played rugby in the first place. <laughs> Just getting straight to the to the point. I enjoyed sport. I was good at football. Uh, I think you really think you're good at football until you play against someone who's better. And then you go, mm, maybe I'm not that good. <laughs> I generally loved all sports, but I didn't excel necessarily in any one in particular. Um, rugby, as you would appreciate, only really gets exciting when someone passes you the ball. Um, and that, I'm a bit different to you, Lawrence. Well, you always found the ball a distraction. Yeah, I you? did. Yeah, I okay. was a dummy runner. In fact, if, if anyone passed you the ball, something went horribly wrong. Basically. Exactly that. Yeah. Generally, there was a laugh from me and my players <laughs> and the crowd. But uh, I, yeah. So listen, I, I, I just thought that um, I wasn't necessarily destined to play rugby. And then, uh, you know, I had one of those life-changing um, moments that. Uh, come to us all, but sadly happened to me very early in my life when I lost my sister very tragically in the Marchioness, 16 years of age. I was, she was 19. Um, we, she was invited on a, on a real boat party, the Marchioness. Uh, I was sat around a table having dinner with her and my mum. Uh, I was invited to go with her. I decided not to. And she went out and never came home. And I woke up the next morning. My mum sort of, you know, shook me out of bed. There was helicopters uh, uh, over oh above. God. And I sort of immediately thought, well, if she she was very sensible, my sister, very unlike me. And I thought, you know, there and then, well, if she hasn't come home, then she's, you know, something's happened. She's dead. Uh, 51 people out of a, uh, over 100 uh, died that night. And listen, as you can imagine, that is a catastrophic, seismic thing to happen in your life at any stage. Uh, it is even, uh, you know when it's so sudden that someone is there and then they're not. Um, as you can imagine, it took a couple of years for me to even start to process that. Um, and you were 16 at the time. 16, like. yeah. And look, I was playing sport. I was doing okay. I went back to school. I was at Ampleforth. Things didn't work out quite understandably. You know, everyone likes to think that I was, you know, expelled or asked to leave. But clearly, mentally, I wasn't in the right place to even be at school. Um, so I did leave uh, in the lower sixth. And... You know, I went, I was wandering around making some terrible decisions, getting myself into all sorts of trouble, understanding the whole reason of why this had happened, why me, why us, why her, et cetera, et cetera. And then my parents were in a really difficult place. My mum and dad, as you can imagine, uh, you know, we have children, you and I now. So, you know, the thought of burying one of your own children is just, you just don't even think about. So, and then I got to about 19... 18, 1990, the end of 1990, and I thought, right, I need to sort my shit out because, you know, my life is definitely heading in the wrong direction. And I remembered that I enjoyed playing rugby at Ampleforth, and I thought, I oh, know, I'll join a rugby club. And it was literally as much as that. And I wanted to do it because I needed, you know, this sounds all quite deep, but it is deep, really. I, I needed a family. I needed a community. I needed a sense of purpose. I needed a sense of belonging. And I needed to do something to make my parents proud and, and to try and bring them a bit closer together. So I joined a rugby club. It was as simple as that. Um, I say it laughing, jokingly. I lived quite close to Harlequins. 
in those days, I didn't really fancy that shirt too much, if I'm honest with you. Uh, I don't know what it was. I wasn't drawn to it in any way whatsoever. I always thought rugby shirts should just be plain, really. Uh, black or blue. Or, or just black. Or just black. Whatever it might be. I actually was lived closest to Roslyn Park, and I thought about joining them. Uh, and then I realised that they were just about to get relegated from National Division 1. And I opened the newspaper, and I, I think it was a... And, and I, I looked at the Courage League and, and Wasps were top of the table. And that's where I went. I went there. I had no idea where I was going uh, or what I was joining. Uh, and I came from a school that had about 20-odd rugby pitches. And I, I walked into a rugby club that had two, barely fit for purpose. But the feeling I got when I walked in there was exactly what I needed. No one asked me any questions. No one, you know asked me where I'd come from, uh, what happened. They just embraced me as you, as they would do in any rugby club, actually. You know, it was, it just felt right. You know, I needed someone to put their arms around me. That's exactly what I got. And slowly but surely, I start started to play. And my mum and dad would come and watch me. And there was a, a sort of purpose to it, really, because every Saturday they'd have a game to come and watch. And it would start, I mean, it didn't happen overnight, but it would start to put a smile on their face. So mm. just fast forwarding, when you talk about the anthem, you know, what that was for me was a real purpose to why I played rugby. And every time I sang the anthem, the reason I got very emotional, obviously I'm quite patriotic, but equally it was more to do with the fact that it made me think about my sister, yeah. made me think about the reasons why I played the game. And, uh, uh, and, it, and it made me pretty driven. Therefore, as my role in rugby evolved and I started to become um, much more of a sort of a leader in the group, you know, I'd be in a changing room and I can't tell other rugby players how to play better. Most of them were better than me anyway, technically and tactically, etc. But what I was able to do somehow was to, or I felt I could do, and where I could really add value was by finding the right emotional touch points in people and connecting them. You know, because rugby is very technical, as we know. It's very tactical. Sometimes people make it a bit more tactical than it needs to be. But it's also about emotion and it's about the head and the heart. And I've talked about this a lot. And I think if you can connect the two things together, then it becomes very powerful. And that's why you see in rugby teams that maybe on paper um, and financially don't look that strong, beating sides that are technically far more gifted than they are because they're able to tap into the right emotional connection. So I made it very clear the reasons to everyone else around me why I played the game and what it meant to me and why I was driven by it. And I asked, I would always ask other people to question what, you know, why they're in the room and, you know, why are we all here together, united? Are we, are we here for a purpose or are we here to, you know, kill a bit of time? So yeah, it was, it was a, it was a, been a fascinating journey. Um, and not a lot of people know about that. Well, thanks for sharing that. I, I knew snippets of it and that was only recently that I heard your story, which again, drew me closer to yourself because of the things I went through before in terms of watching you play yeah. the Wasps Leicester connection but you know that story is I mean it's it's an unbelievable one I don't even know how one you know deal well, well, I mean, listen, I'm sure you don't I mean, get I mean, over something everyone, like that everyone has you know we, we all live we all on this journey of life I mean what I was able to well what I was lucky enough to have growing up was uh, two things really unconditional love which is an easy thing to say as a parent. It's a lot harder to give your children as a parent, especially when the police keep arriving at your door to arrest you. And your mum says, no, 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 definitely the wrong house, not my Lawrence. That can't possibly, that's what you call unconditional love. And this is before everything, is this like young? Oh, this is young, just a young kid growing up. And yeah. also- so it's I've always had, been there. I've had, well, the mischief has, yeah, definitely. <laughs> unconditional love 
and and a, and and a belief system that you can go out and conquer the world, you know, and anything and everything was possible. My parents didn't come from a typical. Well, I don't think there is a typical rugby background, but people like to pigeonhole rugby mm. into this white middle-class elite sport. But my mum and dad run a sweet shop in the East End of London. I mean, that's not rugby, is it really? Mm. So um, I was always taught by my mother in particular to go out and, and anything and everything is possible and, and to really believe um, and to feel that you can achieve anything you want to. So those two things, I think, stood me in quite good stead, really. And it's given me an awful lot rugby. I've got a lot to be grateful for. It's, um, you know, from the minute I arrived uh, at, at Wasps and it could have been anywhere else. If I'd have lived in Leicester, it probably would have been Leicester. If I'd have lived anywhere else, it would have been there. And nowadays I look at the game and players, understandably, are at one club and they move to another. And, and I often ask myself the question, I wonder if I if I played the game now, would I have stayed in the same place? You know, the answer is probably not, but I'd have given it a go, that's for sure. And I think that that's the thing around rugby at the minute and the process and something that I've been going through because of everything that's happening mm. and the headlines that are coming out of the game. You know, I had Dr. Bill Ribbons who's heading up the concussion stuff and the generation that you're in Lawrence and it's now staring us in the face and it's really cool listening to your story and, and how you got to where you got to. And I think about my backstory, Lawrence, I was on a council estate in Coventry. I was in foster care for a year when I was growing up. I think, and I've had this conversation with my wife, would I change anything? Mm. Would I have done anything differently to get to this point where I am now? And look, you know, I gave everything to the game. I can look myself in the mirror, and albeit my discipline was awful at times, I can look myself in the mirror and say, I couldn't have given anything more to the game. And, you know, I've had five years of health issues because I blew my thyroid out in my last game. And I've carried that with me as Mm. well. And... It's taken me a long time, Lawrence, not a long time. It's taken me a year to take in this information, to speak to different people. And I've got mates who are struggling with transition, struggling with uh, concussion issues or symptoms. And I find it difficult sometimes saying, would I have done anything differently? Would I, if I know what we know now, would I have done it differently? Would I have changed? And my answer, hand on heart, is categorically no. Rugby has given me a life. It's given me, it's given me everything everything yeah. and and that and that's the other side you know there's always a well there's three sides to every story isn't there there's your side my side and then the truth <laughs> <laughs> but imagine there's two sides to the story and we're telling the truth uh i believe you you know there's a you can look at life through a certain lens after the event and say hindsight and God, I'm, I'm in a really dark place and this you know, rugby's given me this this and this and i feel really bad why did i even think about playing it and then you look at the flip side of it and you go well let's write on the, on let's write on a piece of paper all the things that i'm that rugby's left me with that i'm really unhappy about i mean i've had 16 major operations of you know I've, i'm this i'm that I've, i'm struggling to you know and I, i'm not suggesting that all those things don't exist you've got to write them down in the in the negatives column and then you write down in the positives column everything that rugby's given you the doors it's open for you the opportunities that it's given you the you know um the the laughs it's given you throughout your life I think that very few people, if you're honest and you're true, and rugby players tend to be quite honest and look in the mirror, as Jim Telfer famously said, there's very few that would say that the pros don't outweigh the cons. I mean, I when I first started playing, I came off the pitch and I was like black and blue. Um, you know, I'd been rucked to pieces, whether I was lying there or not. It's a serious game, a serious sport. Then you'd get into a bath with about 15, 20 other blokes, the same bath, which is a bit odd. Um, and then you'd run upstairs and you'd probably have a pie and a load of chips and about 20 pints in, in as quickly as you could. Nothing about that is good for you. 
right? There, there is. I didn't come off the pitch going, oh, that, I, I think I feel brilliant now. I've been smashed to pieces. I can't actually feel my uh, right arm, um, and I look like I've been cut to shreds. Um, then I'm going to get into a filthy, disgusting bath, and then go upstairs and have a load of fun and poison myself with alcohol. So I think you have to you have to accept that. Um, you have to accept that at the beginning um, and, and work out what you want thereafter. So, yeah, going back to your point, the original question, if I put the column of paper in half and I wrote down, you know, what rugby has done to me that's damaged me and then I r- write down what rugby's done on the flip side of that, I think I'd need another sheet of paper um, to tell you, what, you know, how much it's enhanced my life and hopefully enhanced the life of others as well. It absolutely has. I try to explain to my son who's 12 now he, he when he was 11 so last year like he asked me what it was like playing rugby I took him to Murrayfield I found it very difficult like I I was quite emotional I'm not now I kind of don't live in the past I try and think and I look forward that's mm. the way it is and I know the reason why is because when I look back I really struggle because of how good it was yeah and trying to say to him which he'd never get yeah. I tried to explain to the wife as well like that feeling of alive when you run out for an international match or a big game, not all the games, a big game, you run out, you can't ever, ever replicate that feeling. Like there is no other feeling. But I'd like all. to think that the modern players still have that feeling and still get those incredible, that incredible excitement around the game. I mean, you'd have to, we'd have to talk to each individually to work out the reasons. Everyone has a different reason why they, why they love the sport and why they're drawn to it. And that's fine as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Know, if they're motivated by money, if they're motivated by fame, mm. it is, but... But it, but I remember very vividly at the time that the game went professional, which was 1995. Although for, I'd, we'd been playing for England and pl- playing for our clubs a little bit before that, and we toured places like South Africa and New Zealand, and we're going, whoa, 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 hold on a minute, it, it already looks pretty professional over here already. I was sat in in a, in a bar with a with a lot of people that I played rugby with, and they said, look, this professional thing is not for me. I'm I'm a architect, I'm a builder, I really enjoy my job. I don't want to give up my job to do this job. And they realised that very quickly. I was working in property at the time. I was a surveyor. And the property industry was not in a great place at the time, mid-90s. So I thought to myself, do you know what? I'll give rugby a go, see what happens. Professional rugby. No one knew what we were doing. And that probably explains the reasons why we've ended up how we ended up. I thought, if it doesn't work out, I'll go back to being a surveyor and I'll, you know, I'll go back to that life. But... We have to appreciate that professional rugby wasn't for everyone. And I remember being with Nigel Melville as the first. uh, We were there at Wasps. He was my director of rugby. And the game had gone professional. And having been turning up at the club on a Tuesday and Thursday night, we suddenly went, right, well, now we've got to get everyone in every day this week. Well, how long should we get them in for? I went, well, I don't know. He went, well, neither do I. I said, well, what, what are we trying to do? And he said... I said, well, we're trying to win on Saturday. So let's make Saturday the really important day. Like we've all got to be here on Saturday because it's match day. So let's work backwards from there and let's work out what a working week looks like. And a lot of clubs, I looked around and they just got it so wrong. You know, they were like, let's get them in at eight o'clock. Let's keep them here till six o'clock in the evening. Let's get them in the gym, uh, you know, weights, you know, all this sort of make them quicker, faster, stronger. And I think we were quite lucky because I had a coach in Nigel who was very open to collaborative thinking so I said well look we can't we can't be in every day because no one works seven days a week and if Saturday's the important day then obviously we're going to work backwards from there and we actually won the first professional league in 1996 by six points uh, we beat Leicester 
it was it wasn't a playoff it was just first past the post and and i think that was a lot to do with the the, the way the approach that we took that wasn't you know kind of let's just overwork everyone because they're professional now but if i look back at some of the training drills we did um some of the stuff that we did as as a group not just at wasp but right across the board wow the game has changed enormously i mean no one had a clue what they were doing I yeah. mean, you know especially with regard to um, to training drills. I mean, you look at the players now, the knowledge that they have now, I mean, how much full contact do they do in training now? Maybe five, ten minutes, if that, a week. I mean, we'd be doing plenty more. Well, that brings me on to the next thing, because you mentioned Leicester there. Hmm. So I was at Leicester from 2001 to 2007, the glory days. Yeah. Captain of the A team, but I was in and out of the first team. Played about eight or nine games with Jono. Didn't yeah. give me anything, just said hit me on a two-step lob. But we were effectively, my age group was the cannon fodder for when we played Wasps in the finals, and there were many of them. So I was in the second team, we play on a Monday, and then Tuesday we'd have to bar up again, and I was Simon Shaw, my mate Dan Montague, Stash, was Lawrence Delalio. <laughs> and you can imagine, well, you heard the rumours of these Tuesday sessions, right, when you're, you lads are probably in London doing your thing and we are smashing the living fuck out of each yeah. other and poor Dan Montague poor Stash yeah. I'm a mate Will, you'll know Will Skinner as well he was uh, yeah. Paul Volley I think he was <laughs> getting absolutely hammered them rivalries were yeah. there's nothing like it now so yeah. my question that I want to ask first is were the cultures really that different I mean it was done in a different way but when I look back on it and I think about it you, you, yourself Martin Corrie, two very similar players in terms of aggression and emotion on the sleeve, done in a very different way. Well, first of all, sport is built on rivalry. You know, without rivalry, there is the essence of sport. Sport is about emotion and it's about love, it's about hate and it's about every single emotion in between. And that's okay. You think you're different because, you know, socially, economically, you know, maybe, maybe people look at each other and think, oh, you know, everyone's different but but ultimately when you get to know people you realize actually there's a lot of similarities in in the group and it and it you choose to tell you know to look at the we were regarded as sort of a little bit flash maybe i mean what if you came down to was it's not flash at all i, I think mean, it was the afters more yeah, so for being yeah, flash. possibly but uh um the leicester lads were great and they were very serious about their sport i mean but equally i was the same i, I, I when it's time to work it's time to work you know and i, I was very uh, I'd like to think when I crossed the, the whitewash and started training, I, it wasn't a laugh. It was a serious business. But once you finish training, you know, you can chill out a little bit. Whereas the intensity seemed to carry on with those lads. That's what I mean. So how was that with the likes of someone like Martin Johnson, who was very serious? Well, when I met Jono, he was a he was a Midland Bank bank clerk. He worked for the Griffin Bank, right? And There's no rock and roll in that, he is didn't, there? He didn't say an awful lot. And I remember meeting him when we went to, I was very young, he had just been called out on the Lions tour. He was, he went, we were on the line, we were on the England tour in 94 and we shared a room together. He didn't say a word to me for the entire time that we were sharing a room together. And I thought, am I, you know, do I smell? Have I, have I said something wrong? I was young, he was young, but I hadn't realised that he'd been knocked out in the game against Transvaal and he was, he was concussed. So not only was he, you know, socially quite quiet, but he was, he was obviously still recovering yeah. from being knocked out. But I think, uh, listen, as, as, the, the familiarity that we, we didn't get to see each other very often because in those days there wasn't the number of games that players play now. Um, we played each other once a season, home or away. It wasn't home and away. So there was 10 teams in the Courage League. You played each other once 
And if you won, you won. If you lost, you lost. That was it. And then you'd have four divisional games. He played for the Midlands. And Leicester boys played in the Midlands. We played for London and the South Southeast. And that was it. And then if you got picked for England or, or internationally, there was four test matches a year. So it's a very different landscape. So your opportunities to get to know people, to build up, you know, friendships and perceptions were very different. And, and, and obviously as the game moved forward and we started to get picked internationally, um, takes time as a group. England only met three or four times a, you know, a year. And as we started to grow and develop, started to realise actually that we valued and appreciated all those guys for what they brought to the party and equally so did they. Well, we used to just go out, drink and fight. That was generally what happened. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I was quite interested to, to... I mean, I thought all the fighting happened when you... On the pitch, really. And, you know, once that's over, you don't need to be smashing the living crap out of each other and on the team bus. I mean... That was how you earned your drink. Right, Effectively. Okay. Uh, right. By fighting at training, fighting in the games. And yeah. that's how you became best friends. Yeah. That was the only way you could become oh, best no, friends. It was lovely, though. I mean, we were. I was more interested in... You know, winning, getting the jewels, getting back on the bus, getting back down to London, and then we go out and enjoy ourselves and have a bit of fun together. Can't really go out if we've all kicked the shit out of each other, have we? Mm. But it's just you know, listen, different culturally, and it, it's okay, it's fine. So I'm not saying our way was the was the right way. Oh, it sounded better though. Like I remember <laughs> chatting to Hask and Sips. I was like, mate, what's Delalio like? And they just smiled and were like, I said, mate, I need to get some London in me. I need. To- <laughs> I actually went down to London one night. Martin Castro Giovanni took me down. And you were there, you won't remember me. Yeah. But you took me to China Whites, and I was there with Duncan from Blue, yeah. Callum Best, and I remember Richard Burkett. It might have been Simon Shaw. Let's yeah, say it was uh, yeah, let's say been, yeah. Burkett, and you were there as well. And yeah. I was like, this is the life that I need. But then it was half four in the morning, I was in a taxi, and then had full contact the next <laughs> well, day. Well, I think the other... Listen, I'm, I'm born and bred in London, so I don't see London as something... I mean, London's my life. It's been my birthplace. It's been where I've lived. I've lived in the East End of London <clears throat> with my mum and dad. I've lived in West London, etc. So, you know, if you're born in London, you're born in life. There's so much going on there. Everyone thinks that that little envelope of what you've just said there about going out, they think that that's what we do every night. You know, or every day or every oh, week. Oh, don't ruin it. Don't ruin it and tell <laughs> me that it's not. <laughs> well, clearly not. I mean, I, 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 I'm, you know, as I said to you, I, I'm, I'm someone who likes to have a good time, but I only like to have a good time if you win. I didn't do that if we lost. So do the maths, right? You yeah. won a lot. It's, it's a very simple um, discussion with the group that you're working with. You say, look, if we win, we'll probably go out and have a good time. Um, we might have a few drinks and we might, you know, end up in a few clubs and have a bit of a laugh. If we lose, we're not going out. We're going to go upstairs and we're going to discuss why we lost and we're going to um, make sure that it doesn't happen again for a while. So you can't win every game and you can't go out every week. But rugby is a tough sport. And if you were losing more than you were winning, I would suggest that you find a, find something else to do because I can't imagine how depressing it would be. But we're not. I wasn't there to lose. We were there to win. I can tell you, Lawrence. I played for Scotland for ten years. It's not great. <laughs> no, Genuine, no, mate. It's not. No, it's not. And, it's not great. And, and it's just not. It, no. And I, I have to say, hand on heart, it's easy to reflect on it now. But I would not have continued to play rugby in that situation. So something has to change. Either, either we have to get better and we have to improve, or I have to, I have to find another career because there's no way I'm doing that. I mean, it's bad enough, you know, when you, it's hard enough when you're winning. We trained incredibly hard. I'd like to think we just trained a bit smarter than a lot of other people. I've only had four coaches in my rugby career. Uh, I played for 20 years. That's quite a, Rob Smith, Nigel Melville, Warren Gatland, Ian McGeekin, yeah, Jack Rowell, Dick Best. You know, it's a very limited number of people that have actually, because I've stayed in the, at the same club for 20 years and the relationships between 
coaches and players is a really fascinating one because ultimately, you know, you're all there to try and help each other, aren't you, really? We all want to win. We all want to um, enhance our reputations individually and collectively. We want to have a bit of fun, hopefully. Um, and if you stay together for a period of time, hopefully you, you end that consistency, you know, and that kind of selection, you know, and you grow up together, you end up winning. Um, and if you don't, then either you leave or they leave. Warren Gatlin said you were the best captain he's ever had. Well, big statement. That's a very the, kind thing to say, but it, but equally, I think there's different ways of, I think what he would say, uh, what I would say is that Warren Gatlin's had mostly success everywhere he's been. Um, not always. He, he was in a difficult place with Ireland, but uh, ultimately he was sort of heading in the right direction. And he's always, he's always quite a shrewd operator, Warren, because he knows when to stay somewhere and he knows when to leave. You know, he's got his good timing because um, often it can be timing. And he arrived at Wasps at the perfect time because he looked at the club and thought, well, why are these guys underperforming? Uh, and when he arrived, he made a few changes and he brought a few people in and, you know, Craig White and all of this sort of stuff started to happen. And I think the three years that we spent with him there were without doubt the best three years of our of our lives as rugby players. You know, when I look back at my career, I've had some fantastic little moments here and there, but those three years when he arrived, 2001 to 2003 or four, back to back to back Premiership titles, European Cup, won the World Cup, everything happened, and so that's that's probably why he remembers that moment as fondly as I do because we we had such a laugh and we won everything and <laughs> and we if you could get those three lives but three years back they would be the three that I would pick definitely. How do you fill that void? Now I'm, I'm asking for a, a bit of advice. <laughs> um, you know I'm doing my own thing now, yeah. but again going back to the emotion and also the success i sometimes think right and i think you just said it there and this is no disrespect to worcester or if i stayed for scotland and lost every game dean ryan said this to me right really interesting when he was scotland coach we had our highest finish under dean ryan can you believe it We finished third he said how hard are you willing to work for that two minutes or eight hours if you're heading into London, of euphoria, right? How hard are you willing to work? And when I won the European Cup with Saracens, it could have been the Premiership actually because I had a a decent influence on that. I got a turnover against Exeter. That was my legacy there that helped win them. Could have won the game, that one. That's that's how I remember it. That's how I remember it is basically I won Saracens the Premiership lol. But that feeling, right, when the whistle (laughs) went and the involvement that I had, as soon as it happened, and I had, didn't have many of them, mm. I was a bit part of Leicester, you know, winning the second league. It's very different to winning the Premiership or Europe. But I had that feeling, and I thought back to what Dean Ryan said, that feeling of euphoria, of ecstasy, of winning. I mean, you've won a fucking World Cup, so you can't replicate that. You, you, you cannot. Like, how does someone fill that void when you've had that many? Well, I think it's... it's uh... There's no doubt that the, that that feeling um, is very addictive. You know, winning becomes very addictive. It also drives certain behaviours, which aren't always great behaviours either, because you become greedy and you become kind of I want that feeling again, and I want other people to experience that feeling, and I want to share that. And that is the the essence of being a professional sports person: is you have these objectives, and you know you achieve them. And then for some people, that's kind of well, I've, I've done it, you know. And then for others, it's kind of well, I want to do it again, and I want to do it again. And again and again, there is a huge. I mean, only you know, you you know this. I know this. There's a huge amount that goes into creating that, that, that those feelings. They don't just come out, you know, by waving a wand. You know, there's a huge amount of investment that goes into that. 
And uh, that's not only your investment, there's everyone that is around you, your family, your friends, you know, because ultimately sport, uh, professional sport, even though it's a team sport, is a very selfish career. Every single week, it's about making sure that you can be the best person you can be to help the team to be the best they can be and to win. So everyone around you has to sort of play lip service to that and sacrifice everything that they do in order so you can be you. That ultimately is okay. But when you're doing that week after week, month after month, year after year, that takes its toll. I mean, I, I'll give you a snapshot of that. those three years that I was talking to you about just then. They were, they were great. They were wonderful. Uh, we can look back on all the memories in, uh, you know, about all the trophies and the good times. But ultimately, I went from game to game to game to game. I played in the Premiership final. I got on an aeroplane the next day. Uh, we were down in Australia with in New Zealand and Australia with England. We won two test matches. I came back. I had three weeks off. I went away with my family, but it wasn't really three weeks off because I was worried about how fit or unfit I was going to be. Uh, I got back into camp and we went from camp straight the way through to the World Cup. I had a week off after the World Cup final um, to sober up mainly. Um, and then I played in Europe the following week and we went on to win the European Cup and the Premiership. I then had a day off after we won the Premiership and I was back on an aeroplane, back to New Zealand and, and Australia, captaining England, a very different England. Um, and eventually I got off the treadmill. Um, we lost those two test matches com comfortably, actually. Uh, two in New Zealand, one in Australia, three test matches. And Clive Woodward and, and co moved away. And I thought to myself, this is a joke. No one's in charge of, you know, no, one's, no one is putting the players at the front of the queue and saying what's best for them. You know, and I played continuously because I unfortunately didn't get injured. Because in those days, you actually wanted a little injury just so you could have a couple of weeks off. And in the end, I ended up retiring from international rugby in 2004 because I just thought this is a joke. My marriages are going to fall apart. My relationship with my wife is non-existent with my kids. And one of the reasons why I've, I've never really gone into the coaching um, role is not because I don't think I would like it or enjoy it, but because I'm a sort of all-in kind of guy. Mm. I remember you chatting to me about the coaching stuff yeah. years ago. Well, I mean, it's, we were talking know, about it, it, how good it, you'd be at that. Well, it's not, or, that, I'd be, it's not yeah. that I'd be good at it, but uh, but it's it, I'm, if you're going to do it, you've got to win. Yeah. Because otherwise, um, and maybe that's the wrong approach because maybe, <laughs> maybe I should not be so driven by that, but that's the way I am. And I'd find it very difficult to be involved in a game where you weren't, you're not going to win every game. I accept that. Um, just about, but I'd want to win most of them. And you're not there. You're trying to tell someone how to do it. Yeah, so. and it's and it's well, but then that's a different challenge. You know, you're empowering people and you're trying to bring out the best in them. Leading people is not about showing them how powerful you are. It's about making them powerful, mm. um, and that's that's the challenge. And that's something that I would be quite excited by. But equally, the first ten years of most of my children's lives, I was spent. They were spent following me around not the other way around. So I thought if I do that for another 10 years, they're not going to know who I am, barely. Um, and it's quite challenging that. So I thought I, I, I've got to I've got to reverse the trend here. So my advice is that no one told me to have children at 24. That just happened, right? Uh, I met my wife. We had children very young. First daughter uh, was barely six weeks old and I went off on a Lions tour to South Africa. I had a great time. Was, we beat South Africa in South Africa, but I wasn't around for the first three months of her life, you know? So there was a, there's a lot of guilt that I had when I finished my rugby career that I thought everyone has sacrificed everything for me. I need to do a little bit to, to, to give back now and do, do something the other way. And that's probably one of the reasons why I didn't go into coaching, not because I think it's really good to, 
stand up on a gantry criticising other people because I don't do that. I try not to do that. Unfortunately, I'm a little bit blunt sometimes when I speak. I sort of think that I'm back in the dressing room and I'm talking to players and just saying it the way I would say, you know, if, if they were sat, you know, the kind of Roy Keane approach, which doesn't always go down too well with everyone. You know, you say it as it is. And sometimes if you're outside, you think, oh God, that's a bit harsh or he's a bit biased towards that, you know, but it's, it's just the way it is. There's no, you know, in rugby, you haven't got time to, to mess about and be nice to each other. you just got to say it the way it is. Yeah, well, it's great. We get to see you in the media and I know there's a few others that go in the media and Jono's very different. Actually, Jono's yeah. going to come in soon. He texted me yeah. and said he's going to come in. I well, can't wait. You know Hopefully he gives me something. I'm well, sure well, Jono, he will. Jono is one of those guys that when, you, when, he, when I first met him, I thought, well, he doesn't say very much, which is fine. You know, that's okay. Some of us, like me, say too much. But I've been doing this book about the World Cup win 20 years on, which is obviously this year, it's 20 year anniversary. And it's been a really nice exercise for me because I've got to go around the country and interview every single player that played uh, and was involved in that squad, whether they played one minute or every game. And I interviewed every coach as well. And the book's got uh, a few different parts to it, which hopefully is why, and this is not a plug, by the way. No, let's plug it, 100%. But it's, but it's, um, it's based on a book called The Boys of Summer, which was written um, a long time ago about a, a very famous baseball team. But it's really about looking at that period in <clears throat> Sydney um, in 2003, that nine-week period, and getting players' reflections. Because as time moves on, people's reflections soften, you know, and listening to not obviously the stuff that's been reported, where were you when Johnny hit the drop goal, but actually stuff that people maybe don't know about. Some really interesting reflections. And that's been fascinating. That's and 20 years, isn't it? And then it? the other side, well, it's 20 years and England haven't managed to win anything since mm. then in rugby, sadly. Well, they have, but they've they've not repeated that success. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I say that honestly because they had opportunities, 2007, um, you know, 2019 most recently. But the other part of the book, which is perhaps equally as interesting, if not more interesting, is do you think it was a good thing that we won the World Cup and how did it affect your life? Well, this is the point that I was getting to yeah. as of how you replicate that because I, no one knows what yeah. it's like to win a World Cup on that yeah. level of XT and hysteria. And I look at Johnny, right? I look at Johnny Wilkinson. You said it there just yeah. casually. Mm. When anyone speaks about Johnny Wilkinson, legend, kick the yeah. drop goal to win the World Cup for England. But he's so much more than that. But he isn't is. It? But we were all fo we were all focused so so much on on winning. No one really taught us about what might happen after we won. Mm. Or there was no kind of support system to help you. I mean, the support system was so bad that I played the following week and then played all the way through the season. I remember the lads coming then, back as well. Go, and, then, and then fly. We should have been flying to Canada for a summer off, or you know, somewhere like not quite as brutal as New Zealand, Australia, but yet, no, what we'd do is we'd just send them straight back out there again to the team that really want to beat them. So what's been fascinating about the book is that people won't realise this, but everyone has a different journey. So we won the World Cup, great. We all had that moment celebration together. It was a culmination of six years and then boom, that team, and I remember this when we were in the changing room afterwards and the trophy's there and everyone's in tears, some people are smiling. That team, when they closed the door, was never going to be the same again. Martin Johnson, understandably, I think that was his 85th cap. He retired, didn't play for England again. Johnny Wilkinson hit the winning drop goal. He didn't play for England for another four years after that, just because he was injured, not because he didn't want to. I had a week off because Warren Gatland said, was very proud, said, oh, you know, well done. Uh, I need you to play against Perpignan in a couple of weeks. I went on, to, lucky, luckily enough, to carry on playing because I was fit. 
mentally and physically, and we won the European Cup and the Premiership that year. So it was a good year. It was what you call a royal flush in poker, I think. Um, and it couldn't get any better, really. But I, I, I'm very cognizant that everyone had a different journey. You know, Ian Bolshaw, when I interviewed him, he won't mind me saying this, he said, he said, I completely screwed up my England career after that. It never got any better than that day. You know, we won the World Cup. And he said, that should, I was young. And that should have been the launch pad for me to have become, mm. you know, the next senior player in the group. He said, but I didn't. Well, it all changed, didn't it? Yeah. So, so I think, you know, I think the players, maybe the system around the players wasn't there to, to help them. I talked to a lot of my peer group who mentally, physically and emotionally were kind of quite broken after that, yeah. that, that series of, you know, and they, they couldn't give anymore. Or, I, yeah, you can see that, Lawrence. I'm, I'm not saying I see him and think that or, or, or look at that, but I just go back to that emotional and, and, and that the, the feeling part of something so big that, without giving too much away have you spoke to Johnny? I did speak to Johnny yeah don't give and too much away because we want people to go no no but I mean listen but how, the, how is he after well, the, well going back to Martin Johnson what was really interesting about him is <clears throat> I put some time aside to go and chat to him and I thought well probably an hour or do with Jono because he doesn't say very much but actually when I got sat I, I couldn't you know Jono just never stopped talking he, he's so his memory recall Martin Johnson about things that happened in that World Cup little details and little moments is extraordinary I mean he is a very he's like a sports encyclopedia anyway as you know but his memory recall was is is really sharp you know everyone thinks that guys in the second row you know sort of uh, maybe aren't that sharp but he is incredibly sharp um, and it was fascinating to listen to him. And if you look at where his career went, he ended up becoming coach of England. Um, and, you know, he had four years, five years being coach of England and now doesn't really have any role in, in rugby, which is very sad. Uh, I think he should still be involved in the game in one shape or form. So, and then I met Johnny um, and Johnny is still involved in, in, in different ways. Um, not quite as intense maybe as he used to be, thankfully. Uh, but it, listen, it, it's a breath of fresh air to meet every single player, to listen to their perspective. Just a really good group of people to be part of. And I'm very proud. England have won, are the only country to have won a World Cup at football, rugby and cricket. Every single one of them has gone to extra time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, all three have gone to extra time. So I don't know whether that's an English thing or it's just quite dramatic or the way that it works out. But uh it's something we're all still very proud of. Um, contrary to belief, I was out in in Japan <clears throat> with the England team, with the World Cup, with ITV. I'm not standing there, you know, happy that I've got a stay of execution because England have lost the World Cup. I want England to win. And that's the thing about winning. You've experienced it. I've experienced it. It's something you want to share with other people. You want other people to have that that journey, that career. But yeah, I agree with you. The, the transition's tough. The highs and lows are there. But equally... Again, if you go back to your piece of paper and you write all the things that you've learned and you, all the information and all the things that you've gathered over your career, wherever that might be, all the contacts you've made, retiring shouldn't be that scary a place, really, because you can either approach it in, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Or it's like, oh, my God, I've sacrificed everything I wanted to do to play rugby. Now I don't have to play rugby. I can do whatever I want. And I can start to – and it, obviously it's a bit scary when you get a blank sheet of paper – and you're used to having it filled every day, told what to wear, told where to be, what time to be there, et cetera, et cetera. But as you start to unpick that, it becomes a lot more fun when you don't have to, you can wear whatever you want to wear uh, and you can start to, uh, um, you know, turn up at the times that you want to be there. It just takes a bit of time, takes a bit of help. But uh, if you write down the things that, uh, you know, the directions you could go in, then it gets quite exciting after that. Yeah, well, hand on heart, I can't think of it in any other way. Like, I can't, I can't be 
persuaded. I can't read anything. I can't hear different stories. And some of them are tragic. Yeah. I can't think any other way because of what the game's done for me and yeah. my family. I would never yeah. have met my wife. I wouldn't have had my kids. I would be... Yeah. And ultimately, and ultimately, everything that happens in your life, you can't say that it's ever that other people have made those decisions for you. You know, you're complicit in that in that narrative as well. You know, you're, you're able to make your own decisions. Do I want to play tomorrow? Yes. Do I? You know, do I want to carry on playing? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's you don't. So I think you. It's, it's easy to to apportion blame after the event and say, well, you know, I didn't want to do that, or I shouldn't have done that, or this, that, and the other. But ultimately. You're in charge of your own destiny. Absolutely. Um, and I think you have to accept, we all have to accept the responsibilities of the decisions we make um, and not just lay the blame at other people's door. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You mentioned the current team, 2019-2007, so close both times. Whenever you speak to anyone around 2003... All leaders, right, in their own kind of way. You look at now the England team and the way that it has or was controlled under Eddie Jones. Natural leaders within the makeup, or do you think it is a societal thing now where you're governed by the boss and therefore they make the decisions? Because that everything you hear around 2003, it was all player driven. And maybe that was with Jono what happened in 2011. Like he probably gave the players in that World Cup the same as what you had in 2003. Maybe I think the narrative is 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 not quite. I mean, it's a bit one sided. I don't think the players of two thousand and three were all player driven. I mean, you know, we wouldn't have got anywhere near two thousand and three World Cup final if we were all player driven. It'd have been carnage. <laughs> you know, we 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 had a very strong coaching group, and equally, this generation of you know twenty nineteen with Eddie Jones, from the outside, it looks like they're very coach led and they're not player driven at all. But equally, there's probably a little bit more than we we perceive. Mm. Um, the leadership thing is a tough one because Eddie Jones has always said, I don't think that there's enough leaders in the group. And he's probably right because all of those players, through no fault of their own, have, a lot of that generation have only ever played rugby. They've gone straight from school to academy to whatever. They haven't necessarily had that, that those life experiences that you get when, you, when you're not playing rugby. But equally, you can only really get leaders if you allow them to speak. Like you think of the characters that you had, the dominant figures that you had, like a look at the England team, it seems like they've got one, maybe yeah. two dominant figures, yeah, Farrell but, being the head but of I mean, that. If you remember your own international career, when I got picked for England, I walked into the environment and there were some really strong people there, you know, Will Carling, um, you know, Dean Richards, Brian Moore, Peter Winterbottom, you know, people that on the outside look quite terrifying. When you, And I don't think I said very much. But actually, I was I was thrown in at the deep end. <laughs> I remember play, playing against Scotland at Murrayfield in the early days of Jack Rowell. I was I think it was my third cap or fourth cap for England, and I was in a room of people that were you know had had won Grand Slams, lost Grand Slams, been to World Cup finals, etc. And Jack Rowell, you know, called me up from the back of the room and, and gave me the marker pen and said, you know, turn the flip chart over, tell us how we're going to beat Scotland tomorrow. What did you say? Just put your boots on. <laughs> 
or not. We're all right back then, weren't we? <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was good. It was tough. But, uh, you know, what I'm saying is it took me right out of my comfort zone. Mm. And I had to, you know, think on my feet and deliver something pretty, you know, uh, you know, it was a challenge. So I, I quite liked it. Um, and uh, I don't think you're there for very long. Um, so if you agree with something uh, or you disagree with something, I think it's important that you 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 tell people. And I don't think there's anything wrong in, in, in having a debrief with a coach and just being very honest, as coaches do with you. You could have you know. done that. Well, no. I, <laughs> mean, I, I, I you know, agree. Yeah, I mean, well, that's... Do, you, do you think it's a really good idea to tell the French that we're going to teach them how, what intensity and aggression really looks yeah. like? I mean, you know, I'd go, and, I'd say, and I'm not saying that that's an Eddie Jones thing. I had numerous conversations with Clive Woodward saying, thanks for that. What do you mean? I said, well, you didn't have to do that, did you? Mm. I said, you're not the bloke getting your face smashed in at three o'clock. I said, clearly, because you wouldn't have said that in the press conference otherwise, would you? Mm. You've just made our job that much harder. Warren Gatlin dropped his, you know, dropped his foot in it a couple of times as well, as, as we all have. I've done it as well, you know, saying stupid things that ultimately in a game come back to, to, to bite. So, yeah, I, th- I think the players need to be part of the narrative a bit more in the modern game. I don't think we hear enough from the players, um, and that's, that would be my biggest ask of this generation. So much about winning can be achieved before a ball's even been kicked. Yeah, well, that, the coach needs to be right. There needs to be a culture shift as well. Not You've heard the story before. Yeah. I, on the after-dinner circuit that I've done around Andy Robinson when we were playing against the All Blacks mm. in 2008 or 2010, you know, they were 12 games unbeaten. We just won the wooden spoon against <laughs> Italy. Couldn't score a try. And the only way we were going to beat the All Blacks, quote-unquote, was to play like the All Blacks. So we trained all week, offloading out the back door, I've never fucking offloaded the ball in my life. And I had the idea as a vice captain, I should have been captain, but I had the idea of, look, mate, set piece and kick the fuck out of the ball. That, that, and then we might have a chance. Brought me off at half time, never played again. Scotland got beat by Tonga and he got sacked. So challenging the coach, <laughs> challenging the coach, right? And I think he kind of maybe thought I was being divisive. I was being honest. I was like, man, I want to win this game more than you. Like, I, want to, I want to beat the All Blacks for the first time ever. But we ain't going to beat them by doing that. Yeah. And I wonder the confidence within the England group to be able to do that under Eddie Jones. And it comes on to my next question, Lowell. So you've got Faz, captain, we all agree. If, it, if not Faz, then... Well, first of all, I think Owen Farrell is one of my favourite players of all time. Uh, as, as, as was his dad, yeah. who I had the fortune of, uh, and Wigan were one of my favourite teams of all time. And I became very close and still very close with Sean Edwards, Gary Connolly, Inga Twigamala, the late Inga who's, who played for Wasps, uh, Martin Afire, who also played for Wasps. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a theme there. So I was very close to those guys. Owen babysat for my son Enzo on, when, when I was playing in the 07 World Cup final. You know, brought him on the pitch. He wouldn't go on the pitch with anyone else. And then a few years later, Enzo's there going, Dad, my, ba- my babysitter's playing for England. I said, yeah, he won't be babysitting again. His, his rates have gone up a little bit. So he's, just a, he's a smashing kid. And you've got to remember that that young man was probably listening to, you know, his dad and mum going around the pitch at Wigan. You know, oh. They were winning. He was winning before, yes. before he was even the born. Apprenticeship. So, you know, he's incredibly driven and I, and I love him to bits. And, and uh, But equally, by making your fly half your captain, I think you're wasting a, a, a trump card. Do you know what I mean? He is already the captain leader of that team. I think he has enormous responsibility on his shoulders. Um, he is clearly, in terms of his standards, I, I watch him warming up every week, whether it's for Saracens or England. He's the one driving those standards. That's fine. But the art of captaincy now in the modern game of rugby is really about managing the relationship with your team and the referee, with your team and your opponent, and 
on the basis that the majority of penalties and free kicks are given away in and around the breakdown, uh, if you're fly half or Brian O'Driscoll at outside centre, it's quite difficult to have an ongoing negotiation with the uh, referee. If you have to walk forwards towards a referee, that's already quite an aggressive confrontation. If you then have to articulate it with everyone else listening, that again, you're, you're inviting people to participate in the conversation, which is not the art of captaincy. So um, on the basis of that, I would definitely have always made a forward my captain. Not because Owen Farrell was not the best captain, he probably is, but because it's about being having small... Uh, quiet conversations with the referee, trying to get him on side. You never heard Richie McCaw really speaking to the referee, but of course he was in his ear all the time. And the ref was in his ear as well. Martin Johnson, you probably heard a bit more of him. I'm not saying backs can't captain sides, because of course they can, but the majority of the World Cups have been won by a forward as a captain. And that's not because we're better captains. Uh, it's because that's where most of the action happens. Yeah, it's where the chaos is. It's where the chaos is. And by not making captain, it doesn't undermine him in any way whatsoever. Mm. It frees him, actually. frees him up. You wouldn't take the goal kicking away from him, um, which is what they did with Marcus Smith, which is odd. Mm. Um, don't pick him at 10 and then take him, take away all his uh, his responsibilities because that's almost like saying, well, I trust you, but not you know, but you've got to go out with your big brother. You can't go out on your own. Um, so it's, it's, it's weird. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be controversial, but I would have made, there was a time when I'd have made uh, Jamie George captain. Or Courtney's done it for or a Courtney's bit, done it for a bit. I, just, I just think... Do you think the captain should help choose Ellis, the Ellis, team? No, yeah, Ellis, no, 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 no. You don't, know. Uh, no, Ellis Genge would be a, ca- a very good candidate for captaincy. He's the, he's the guy that Borthwick picked at Leicester mm. and everyone thought, ooh, it's a strange selection, is it? Uh, but it actually worked brilliantly. He captained them very well. It could easily be Maritoji. I um, mean, everyone said, well... You know, maybe his behaviours weren't quite weren't quite like that. But he's achieved everything in the game. He's an awesome player, awesome player. Yeah. I mean, why can't he be an awesome captain as well? Of course. Uh, so yeah, there's a number of options. And you said no to helping, not select the team, but being able to have that discussion. So if you're Genji, say Genji's, you, do, you right, don't you don't select the team unless, unless the uh, unless the coach comes to you and says. Uh, uh, I mean, the way the game is now, I'd just be delighted to make sure that I'm in the, I'm in the team, whether I'm captain or not. But that's what I mean. But like Richard but, McCaw was across yeah. conversations yeah. and being like, he and was a good player, played against yeah. him. Because every, yeah. Yeah. every captain, I mean, it's not about, we're not cricket. We don't select the team. The, the coaches select the team based on what they think is the right thing to, to the right team to pick. But if you're unhappy with the team, you would definitely go and have a word with the coach and go, are we okay? Are you okay with that? Are you sure? You've not been drinking again last mm. night, have you? We're going to pick a guy on the bench who's never played any Premiership rugby, yeah? But I'm sure you'd go up, right, to no, the no, coach I... and say, like, are no, you no. playing the Prem every week? Yeah. No, I def- and they're not I... picking on form, or Eddie didn't pick on form, you'd ask the question. But I, I don't think I, anyone did, did no, they? No, I definitely, I definitely would. You would have? I would, would have done, yeah. I just say, just just give me the rationale behind why you're picking. Okay. And if he says X, Y, and Z, I go, okay, I get that. Mm. But no, I would have had that conversation without a doubt because you as a captain, as a senior player, have got to be comfortable with the group that you're, you know, and you, and also you've got to back it up because you're going to say to people, well, you know, I was really pleased with the selection. I was really happy with that. I'm not going to lie about it. No, if I'm unhappy about it, I'm going to say something about it. But the other thing about selection that's really important is that if you look at the history of teams that win, uh, there's obviously a little bit of a one-off. You know, fortune can play a big part in it. But if you look at the history of teams that win consecutively and consistently, like year after year after year, there's a common theme or themes that sort of develop through those teams. One is there's a trust between coach and players and there's a consistency in the selection. Now, yeah. I, I played 85 times for England. I got dropped a couple of times, uh, as we all do. We'll get shafted at some point in our career. I could have been dropped a lot more than I was, but there was a trust 
in my performance didn't always play brilliantly but that when it mattered I would come good in the end and I think you need that trust as a player and coach that you get that consistency and then you start to get picked on a regular basis with the same group of people and then you build that trust and the second thing uh, the other thing that comes through with successful sides is the consistency of message that you deliver and I think in the last few years with England there hasn't been that consistency of selection and trust that you need to be successful and there hasn't been that consistency of message the quarterfinal in in uh, in Wita and the semi-final against New Zealand in Yokohama were tactically probably two of the best tactical masterclasses I've ever seen from any coach unfortunately the job of managing a team like England is not just about coaching it's about managing people and i think that's where things that's where you fell that, well that's no i think that's where things start to get much more complicated okay in what way specifically with that then well because you know you just need to be kind to people okay um you know if if you say stuff to people you know you've got to be mindful that, that the player you pick him might break his leg and then you've got to go back to that person and then get them to play for you again so i think um it's a lot harder now you know to 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 speak to players you know you've got to treat them with respect <laughs> I was going to say massage them, but that's the wrong well, word. Respect no, is the no, right word. No, respect, respect is the right and, word for and, sure. And expect them to treat you with respect. The back. I mean, you know, if if coaches said certain things to you or me that you took exception to, yeah, I was a bit old school. Yeah. I had my little Desmond against would the you wall. Like to repeat that again, yeah. please. You know, go fuck yourself, basically. Yeah. Um, I just think he's a great coach, Eddie. He definitely needed to get a better buffer between himself and the media i think his relationship with the media deteriorated because he's you know he would say he never he he, he sort of looked like he wasn't enjoying it anymore he mm. used to be quite funny and quite mischievous and and have a bit of a giggle in press conferences throw the odd grenade here and there say things that he didn't mean but you know he'd do it to be mischievous but it's almost became a bit of a chore for him as as time went on and he sort of there was this kind of feeling that he thought that they were all ganging up on him. I mean, the British press in rugby generally are the, probably the kindest group you'll ever meet. I mean, you know, try being the England football manager. Or, yeah. so, or yeah. even the All Blacks, you look at the yeah. pressure that Ian Foster's been under. How yeah. important is the media, do you think? Well, I, I know you've had a few run-ins with the media, but no, uh, as in how important is it to manage no, them and to get they're, them inside? They're, they're, don't, don't be confused with media and, and those people. They're, they're, yeah. they're, not, they're not media. Yeah, it is important because we're fighting for people's attention, you know, and I think the media is is ultimately some people enjoy it more than others, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's a, it's an opportunity to reinforce your message. I think you can use it because it changes week to week to week. You, know, you win one week, everyone thinks you're brilliant. Then you've got to you've got to articulate that in the right way that so that you approach the next game, and you know you're not quite as favourites as everyone wants you to be. So I think it has an important role to play. And uh, Clyde Woodward said to me, and all of us years ago, he said, "I want you guys to be household names." Not quite like that, Lawrence, but I want you to be household names because no one knew who we were. And obviously, that journey we went on started in about 97, that finished in 2003. But by the end of that, we were household names. And we and we were, we were household names in more than just rugby households. You know, it transferred across. So I think there is, a, there is an opportunity to, um, to do something quite powerful in the media. Yeah. And it's part and parcel of, of what we're about. I mean, players on one hand say, I don't like the media, and then they, they but they love Instagram and they like um, Twitter. I mean, what, well, that's what, different. Well, yeah. Fabricated but, life. It's well, it, not well, they're posting person the right, to person. It, no, but you're still, putting, you're still putting a version of events out yeah. there. 
I mean, it's it's amazing how, how great everyone's life is on on those channels, isn't it? Really, they yeah. never never have a bad day, do they? Really, I know. Fantastic. Smoke and mirrors. That yeah. is the drama. I didn't mean to joke about your relationship with the media, but it's one of the things that has <sighs> been part of your career. And look, I'll be honest. Like, I'm not necessarily a fan of everything that you read, but yeah. like that's part of who you are. It's like the enigma. It's you know the the myth. The hysteria, the drama, and there's a part of that which is quite endearing. Lol, I'll be honest from my well, point of view. Well, I mean, there's a vulnerability with me, without doubt, and you know, and I'm not trying to say, you know, when you're a rugby player, you think, and people think that you're invincible. You're not. I mean, I'm. You're not invincible in any way, shape, or form. I've never met a rugby player that is. Um, you know, you have strengths and weaknesses, um, and. Uh, you know, hopefully you have a lot more strengths than you have weaknesses, but, you know, you make mistakes. I've made plenty on and off the field. And, yeah, you've, all you can do is 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 be a big boy and own up to them and, and admit to them and, and go, yeah, that was um, that was ill thought out. That was um, stupid, whatever it might be. And you, and, you, and you learn and you move on. But also what you mustn't do is hold this anger, you know. Uh, I'm a big believer in in trying to maybe, maybe sport teaches you that more than anything else you know you win or you lose you're angry or you're excited for a period of time like 24 hours 48 hours and then you've got to let go again you know in any performance whether it's on the field you know winning or losing a game of rugby or whether it's off the field talking to a uh, a, a journalist or someone who's pretending to be a journalist whatever it might be you know you've the first person you've got to look at is yourself and go could I should I have done better could I have acted differently and ultimately, that's where the truth lies, really. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the good news is that I'm here talking to you. Uh, the news of the world are no longer here. Mm. Um, and I think the, the world is a better place as a result of that. Yeah, it takes a strong human, though, to be able to have them characteristics. And I say that as a player that would leave a lot of stuff in the back of the mind if I read or if I saw or if there was an accusation or if I'd you know, been mistreated or whatever. Yeah. It takes a strong human being to be able to say them things. I'm not speaking for you because, mate, no, like, you've a lot more but, wisdom but I think and when you experience go back than to, me. When you go back to your own experiences, you know, when I was sat around that table as a 16-year-old being told that my sister was never coming home again, mm. th that is what I call real pain. Yeah. Uh, and once you've been there, you know, having someone saying you didn't play very well or you could have been, you could have judged something a bit better, I mean, really, is that going to hurt yeah, you? Don't be, don't be silly. I mean, it's all about perspective. And from that moment on, my perspective was very, very different. So... Yeah, it's um, it, you learn very quickly, and you pay. Oh, never my mum used to come up to me and say, "Do you see what he's written about you?" I said, "Who needs you know? Who needs enemies when you've got friends like that?" And I said, "Mum, you know, calm down." I said, "It's just a job. It's no problem. I don't need to pick up a newspaper or to turn on the television to know whether I played well or I didn't play well." You, you, you mustn't have this siege mentality and go, "Oh, well, you know, the media are, are like this or whatever," you know. As, a, as someone who's worked in the media like you, I love to talk players up. I love to talk teams up. I love to talk about winning, but you can't always do that. I always have this rule that I, I'm not going to write anything down in, a, in an article or say anything that I wouldn't be prepared to say to the player if they were standing in front of me. It's like I was chatting to Johnny Sexton, and I think it was maybe four years ago. I said, oh, he needs to retire. Yeah. And that was going based on I retired at 34, so I presume that everyone had to retire yeah. at that age. But the injuries that he'd been through, 
And I'm sure, I'm not, I'm not sure, I know his brother and his Johnny's mates probably carry that as well. Well, like, he'll, he'll remember, he's coming it, as your guest, I think, in the future on, on this podcast, yeah. and he'll remember that. I know. And I'm happy to <laughs> yeah. say like, I'm happy to yeah. say the reasons why I thought yeah. that. And you know what? I'm glad I'm wrong. Yeah. And also, by the way, if if um, anything that someone said about me, whether it be Stuart Barnes or, or, or whoever, um, if that gave me even more motivation than I already needed, then great. Um, and the moment in time as well, isn't it? As yeah. in... You know, stuff I've said stuff that yeah. I feel very differently. Like Owen Farrell was a perfect yeah. case. Like, I didn't enjoy playing with him, I didn't like the way that he acted. Yeah. Now, having a, a, a perspective from the outside, yeah. I wish I was different in yeah. that moment. You know, I, I totally agree, but also, you know, there's motivation that you use to empower you and your team's performance, but equally, there's stuff that you can say about your own team, either behind closed doors in front of them or outside that can empower their performance as well. So I'd like to, I've, I focus more on how I can get the best out of myself and my own team rather than worrying about who's in the change room next door. England then, what's the expectation? What what should the fans expect, do you think, under Borthwick? So take away the Six Nations, we'll see how that unfolds, but World Cup in France, should there be an expectation that England can win it? You look at 2019, Well, England- so close yet so far in the final, but against New Zealand, unreal. Yeah, look, to win a World Cup, you've got to win six games on the on the bounce. It used to be seven, but South Africa proved that you can do it by winning six. So you can win this England team, doesn't whether they're coached by Eddie Jones, um, Steve Borthwick, uh, whoever could win six games on the bounce, no doubt about it. What I would say is as much as we want to see this clean sweep, you know, end of the Jones era, new Borthwick, he hasn't got much time to experiment, really. Um, and, you know, I've heard already on cross-social media and everything else about let's bring this player in, that player, let's pick on form, Val Rapava Ruskin, let's get, you know, uh, Tom Pearson. You know, all these great players who are playing brilliantly well week in, week out in the Premiership. Think about your five test ma- first five test matches for Scotland. I know my first five test matches for England. You know, you don't just go from one environment to the other and, and it's like a duck to water you know it takes a bit of time so uh, as much as people will be clamoring for, for for lots of new things if you want to have a realistic run at this world cup i think he'll go with players that he knows can deliver what we will get with steve is is that that level of detail that that level of um of basics that eddie jones talked about when he first took over england and that's why england was successful i don't think he's got the opportunity to pick a load of players who are never going to play for england so he won't be picking squads of 103 people and then only working with 30 of them because I, I never quite understood that. If You can't, on the one hand, moan about not having enough time with the players and then pick a load of people that, have never, that are never going to play. Don't pick your fifth-choice fly half and bring him into a World Cup camp. Why would you do that? So I think, I think we'll see a streamlining of the process, um, but I do think there is a group of players that are very clearly will take England forward to the next World Cup. No one's going to want to play England at this World Cup by the time we get there, because they'll be a very dangerous side because they'll be driven, they'll be motivated, the coaches will be motivated and they will certainly not go into games without knowing exactly what the details require. And I think when you're coached, if you remember the best coaches you ever had, they give you clarity and understanding of what's required. Absolutely. Uh, but they give you the freedom to 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 operate within, within a slightly wider parameters. Mm. And I think that... For whatever reason, the message has got lost in the last couple of years, probably because of selection, because if the message keeps changing and the personnel keep changing, you don't get clarity. So that there needs to be a clarity of message. And from everything I see about Steve, there is that clarity of message, but you equally have to 
allow players to operate in slightly different parameters. I'm, I'm expecting England to have a good World Cup. And can they win it? Yes. Are they favourites? Absolutely not. They've got a long way to go. The narrative never changes with England. If you ask anyone, I'd love to be able to stitch something together. Who's the team do you want to be? And I say that having played for Scotland, yeah. Wales, New Zealand, right. South but, but, Africa, but they, Argentina, but everyone, England. Everyone, and, and, and rightly so, if that's what motivates them. But they use that narrative to drive their own performance. Mm. When you look at the World Cup trophy, three names, four names that are on the World Cup trophy, are South Africa, Australia and New Zealand. If you want to widen your parameters and you want to win a World Cup, you've got to beat at least two out of three of those teams. England, under Eddie Jones, had to do it the hard way and they had to beat three out of three of those teams. That's asking a bit too much. There's not many sides, that, well, there's no side that won the World Cup by beating all three, back to back to back. England beat Australia in the quarters, they beat New Zealand in the semis. I think whatever the South Africans tell you, to beat the South Africans after beating New Zealand was asking a little bit too much. Even they couldn't manage that. They got their asses handed to them by New Zealand in the first game. Yep. Everyone casually forgets that. And then they went away and they licked their wounds and they didn't have a difficult run to the final and they were fit, sharp, fresh, etc. And they won and they deserve to win. But uh, to win the World Cup, it's not about beating Wales, Scotland in a one-off game. It's about you know winning six games of which two are going to be against the two teams that have won the World Cup three times each. So, And then France in France. Yeah, they're France in France. I, of course they're favourites. Of course they're favourites. And they deserve to be. I mean, I still can't quite believe that they haven't lost a Test match in 14. Under and, Fabien Galtier, who is arguably one of the worst coaches I've ever well, had. Well, worst man managers. Man managers, that was it. Because he's brought in a load of coaches. I mean, he's not that stupid, is he? I mean, he's brought in some really smart people, uh, as is, you know, Ibanez, who's the, been, is the front-facing sort of... Uh, uh, you know, the person that does all the press and et cetera. I mean, they're smart. Because, Laurent Travert from yeah, Racing. Yeah, they've got some okay. They've got some really good... And there's talk about, you know, uh, about Gregor Townsend maybe going over and joining them in the uh, as attack coach after the World Cup. So France are favourites. The biggest challenge will be, can they cope with the pressure of playing in your own country? When they walk out and they're, billboard, and they're, they're all across billboards around their own country. Because there's not many teams. I think South Africa did it in 95. New Zealand did it in 2011. It's not easy to win a World Cup in your own country. And that opening game, wow. I keep looking at that thinking, I keep sort of scratching, you know, saying, just keep going, is it really happening? You know, New Zealand against France. Yeah, it was the same in 2007, wasn't it? September the 8th. I yeah. mean, wow, what a way to start a tournament. It was in 2007, that was the opener, wasn't it? Yeah. As well. Um, it's it's going to be amazing. Um, so, yeah, they, they are undoubtedly favourites. Uh, I think Ireland are not far behind, you know, albeit they need to keep uh, Johnny Sexton in one piece. Mm. Um and uh, and New Zealand and South Africa. I don't know, the game seems to have shifted for me. I look at the, the the international teams at the moment and there's some big men. I mean, like some seriously big guys. And the teams that are doing really well at the moment, they've obviously got incredible skill at nine and ten, but their forward pack is just full of monsters. Mm. Like, I always used to think, I don't know if this is for public consumption, but you need a couple of guys in your team that look like they've murdered their own children. Yeah, That was always quite reassuring. We had more than our fair share. We had more than two. Martin Johnson was definitely captain of that team as well. <laughs> but I look at South Africa and I look at France and I look at the reasons why they're so successful at the moment. They've got huge ball carriers, huge. And they've got those same players that when they get over the ball, I mean, how are you going to get them off the ball? Those teams 
um, a, a distinct advantage because they've developed this pack that is just enormous. Size is still everything. Now, now I look at England at the moment and I wonder where have all our big men gone? Mm. You know, have we are we are we training the wrong way? Are we doing something different? Or are we just gone through a generation where we just don't? I, have- I can tell you the answer, what which I th- uh, which I've heard through the grapevine of academy coaches right. that there isn't big people coming through now because big people in the UK culturally are constantly told, and I know this because my son's a big lad, to suppress, calm down, calm down, gentle, gentle. And it's a big statement to say, like soft, whereas other countries are encouraged. And and I don't mean this disrespectfully because I think we've got some very talented rugby players, you know, but I look at our back row, like size-wise, compared to South Africa Africa and France and and even Ireland Ireland to a degree. And I'm wondering, no wonder we're second best at the moment. Mm. And then we're playing Marcus Smith at fly half. We're going, well, what's the point in playing him at fly half? We've got no quick ball. And this is one of the problems that Nick Evans is going to have to solve, really, with England, is if we're not going to get quick ball, if we're going to play in a certain way, then, you know, then you, you pick certain people. Kick. Um, well, you do, don't Kick you? Kick and run. You do. I mean, you know, and and then once you've developed that, if you suddenly, you know, it's 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 a real challenge for the, for the modern day coach and, and the players now because, you know, I want to be winning more than I'm losing. So therefore, I just want to play in a way that's going to help me win. Of course, I want to play attractive rugby. I want to score tries. We all want to do that. But would I would I substitute that for winning? No, it's all about winning. Because listening to you talk and people will hear it and it will come through and people who've watched you and know you. You run through a wall for Lawrence Delalio, but the same is for someone like Kevin Sinfield. Yeah, 100%. And for anything that he might be lacking tactically and his experience in the game, one thing I think with England, and I'll say this because Scotland have beat them back-to-back, there's a softer, or there has been a softer underbelly. 100%. I wonder if Kevin Sinfield, regardless of tactically he might not be there, what's your feelings on having someone as a focal point with that emotional drive which well, is hard to you've either got that or you haven't yeah and look he's a um he's a serial winner as well um well he certainly has been throughout his career yeah i mean i've watched his career followed his career um doesn't doesn't talk about it just does it and there is a there is a simplicity about his language i'm sure that he will articulate to players in a way that is not corporate gobbledygook or, or, or management talk the thing that really hit me when Sean Edwards first came into rugby union was just how direct he was with what he's asking players. He taught and um, coached things that actually happened on a rugby field, not things that he thought happened. They actually happened, right? This is how you score a try, and this is why we're going to practice scoring a try. Kevin and, and Andy Farrell does that as well. There's a northern well, there's a northern well, it's just a, it's just, a, it's just a, a a directness and an authenticity that is he he's going to ask people to do things that 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 he's already done himself, mm. um, that he would be prepared to do himself, and that he wants his players to do. So that there will it won't take people long to pick up that message, um, and there will be a clarity and an understanding that if you do that, we've got a very good chance of winning this game. I want to have a bit of fun just quickly before we yeah. go. Lawrence, yeah. so I came up with an England 15, right? So say, I mean, this is completely hypothetical, right? Of an England team, so say I was the England coach and I could pick any team from any generation. Mm. So I want you to give me yours. And I'll, I'll give you mine and Go then on. you give me yours. All right, should we start with Lucid? Should we go that way? Yeah. I've gone Ellis Genge. Doesn't matter what they've done. I'm, t- I'm talking about like out and out, like in terms of the qualities that I'd want in a player, in a man, and the effect that they can have on the game. I feel bad on Trev Woodman because I'm a huge fan of him and I love Gloucester. Yeah, well, I 
can't believe you've overlooked Jason Leonard, really. I oh, mean, God, I, I, mean, I have. I, I mean, uh, you know, you know that that man has, has secret weapons that no other man has. Yes, so he I, does, I've yeah. Very, very, I can't believe you've... Um, you've I was uh, with him in Hong Kong, so I feel a bit bad now because I, yeah. I saw him in all yeah. his glory. Okay, you've gone Ellis Genge. I mean, it's difficult because we're comparing eras. We're I, comparing we are, teams. We are. We're comparing it's hard, it's fun, players though. who, well, if it's fun, then I've got to go with the fun bus. Okay. Uh, and he is number one. Uh, hooker, Jamie George. Yeah, Without but, being horrible, there's not a huge no, no, amount I'm, of hookers. No, I'm good with Jamie George. You happy? Yeah, I'm happy with that. All right, cool. Shall I go? Yeah, you go. Yeah, go Phil Vickery. And I say that because I played in Billy Twelve Tree's testimonial a few weeks ago, yeah. and he fucking monstered me. I was like, mate, aren't you about 60? He looks like a back row forward now, doesn't he? He doesn't look like a I couldn't believe anymore. how hard he hit. Yeah. I hit this short line. I weren't even 40 at the time, and he yeah. is, like, hit me. I mean, James Hook handed me off just before, and I got pins and needles in my yeah. feet, but... So I'd go Phil Vickery as well. I think it's I, I'm not prepared to bring players from from yesteryear who didn't play professional rugby. So you know you could that's fair. You could bring Jeff Probin in there and say there's a greater argument for the, for for you know or a Peter Winterbottom in the back row. I'm I'm look only looking at professional rugby. We're going colour. We're going colour TV. Yeah. Right. We, so we're, f- go, we're going yeah VHS, not Betamax. Controversial second row. I'm, I'll name both of them. I'll go four five. No, I think we'll be different. On well, this. I think Martin Johnson. Oh, he, hands he, down, he's untouchable. One of the top players of all time, let alone in this England team. And then Maritoji is the other one. Um, and you know, as Ben Kay was our brains trust, thank God, because he was the only bloke who could actually call a line out that uh, that we could win. And- but nearly lost you the final, so that's why he's not in there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's, we we won all their lineouts. They won all ours. I wonder why. Um, but uh, yeah, Maritoji, I think he makes it into pretty much any side, really. I just think, and the scary thing about him is that this, you know, there's even more to come from him. Uh, he's not in Jim Hamilton's 15. I fell out with him. He's fell out with me, so I fell out with him. Well, he unfollowed me on social media, well, so he's he not. He unfollows you. He probably kept you out of the team at Saracens even when he was 16 or something. Even that is correct. <laughs> I was, actually didn't mind that. It's the fact that he unfollowed me on social media. So I took Marrow out and I put Courtney Laws in. <laughs> We talked about this, you know, this personal anger management. We can't hold on to anger. Very you, true. You, you've got to let that one go. It is personal, though, because I did coach him as okay. he was coming through okay. and effectively okay. give him my position. Okay. We'll get him to follow you again. Okay? Right. We'll see what he says. I don't know. Well, if he turns up and wants to be a, a guest on the Big Gym Show, will you put him back in? 100%. Okay. So we'll talk about it with him. So I've gone Johnson, uh, of course, Jono and Courtney Laws. Right. Bat row. Six. Well, there's only. I mean, uh, you want me to bring one of these young lads from from now into the Holy Trinity? Do, do you really want me to do that? It was difficult for me to to do it. Like it really was. This was the hardest position, I'd say. This and the wingers. Let me go first. Okay. So six. I've gone. Lewis Moody. This is me picking what I, I want chaos, lol. Okay, so you're playing what one game every eight games or something? What yeah, you this yeah. is like the one game. This okay. is it. Like this is my, my the one game that I get. I want chaos. Okay. I want carnage. I want Mudos. Okay, gone six. Richard Hill, uh, undeniable. That well, is deep rooted. I mean, he's untouchable as well. He's a, he's another one of my untouchables. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Maybe the back row. I've not I've I've not messed up here, but I've just gone like best no, back row. No, your heads up. Your heads up up your props ass, mate you're not even looking back to see who's behind you you're not worried about that you're just thinking forward aren't right you? on the other side then Neil Ben see I've, I've put you in there but I think I've done it the wrong way around because I think I've gone Mudos as a 7 mm. and I've put you in at 6 yeah, I played 6 for the Lions in 97 but uh you happy with me putting you in there uh, I mean obviously I'm happy that you did because I can't put myself in there really you, of course so, you can yeah so, all right, I'll put you in. And who are you putting on the, on the other one? No, so, you're listen, going, you're I, going I, Neil I, back I would, and... pick, I would pick my back row from 2003, without okay. a doubt. I mean, right. why would I not? 
Well, it's yeah. undeniable, isn't it? Yeah, like they, that. They've won everything, mate. They've won everything there is to win. Oh, and, God, I'm second-guessing myself And they've done it again. I mean, I love Tom Curry. I love him to bits. And I love, you know, some of these other guys. Billy Vanapola, fantastic. I've put him in. I've put Billy at eight. I'm yeah. saying, I'm not, I've got to stick to my guns. Yeah. I've thought about this for about half an hour. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. So my back row is you at six, Mudos at seven, and Billy Vanapola at eight. Yeah, you're the wrong man to do this with, Lol. They're like three pieces of a jigsaw that don't fit, though, aren't they, really? Do it's carnage, I mean? though. No, it is, I know. Okay, but I'm not looking for control. I'm looking okay. for chaos. <laughs> looking for just, yeah, okay. All right. Talking of chaos, scrum half, I've gone Harry Ellis. <sighs> Good choice. like Harry Ellis. Good One choice. of the hardest men I've ever played with, Lol. So let me just tell this story quickly. So Scotland, England, I was Scottish. He's obviously playing for England at nine. We do a move at the back of the line-out. And Harry, as we know, was like one of the best tacklers, one of the hardest nines ever. Puts this unbelievable tackle on our winger, Simon Danielli, and he's flatlined on the floor. And I look, and literally, let's just embellish it a bit, his ears next to him on the floor. And he sees me like we've been, we were best mates growing up and stuff like that. I've stood over him. He can't believe I'm in a Scotland jersey. And he's like, Jimbo, what's happened? I'm like, mate, your fucking ears fell off. (laughs) His ear, it was literally hanging off. Hard as nails. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's a good player. And that's my nine. Yeah. Chaos. Well, in terms of taking opportunities, Matt Dawson is without doubt the uh, the, 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 the player who, who springs to mind. But it's very hard for me to split Kieran Bracken and Matt Dawson. I mean, I you know, grew up on your Richard Hills and, your, you know, guys like that who were fantastic as well, Dowie Morris. But, yeah, I think Kieran, if, I went, if I went hand on heart, I'd say Kieran Bracken, I think. Oh, that's good. I love that. Kieran Bracken, we did a, an after-dinner yeah. speech thing. Me... Haskell, Kieran Bracken. Hass goes up, is walking around the stage aimlessly doing these jokes. I found them quite funny, but yeah. clearly people in the room. And it was like to find out the best speaker. Then I've gone up and like felt like I smoked. That was definitely better than Hass. Yeah. And then Kieran Bracken goes up. I'm thinking, fucking hell, old school. Like there ain't a chance that I've g- got give me, this. Give me the prize now. Might drop. Kieran Bracken was unbelievable. Like as in I stood up and applauded him. Yeah. I'm happy for him to be in there. Yeah, he's a good man. Very important player in 2003. Matt Dawson got the headlines, understandably, but he was man of the match, Kieran Bracken, in the uh, in the South Africa pool match against Jus van der Vestesen. Mm. Uh, wouldn't have won the World Cup without him. I can't go back, though. Like, you, you could sell me a pencil, lol, so I've got to yeah. be careful here. So that's why I'm going first. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you've got to be very clear that the... Um, Whoever whoever um, comes into the team in place of one of those great warriors in 03 has got to be really good. I've got, I, know. I mean, really good um, because they've got to show that they can be consistently good as well. So yeah. there, there is a few that make it in. Jamie George, Mario Toji. Nice. I didn't go down. for Mario. Yeah. Um, you, yours was personal rather than I know. professional, which I'm disappointed by. Really. Yeah, I'm actually second-guessing myself. Right, so for 10-12, I would no- not normally do this, right? So normally I think like Farrell's a 10. I don't believe he's he's a 12. But for this, I've put Farrell at 10 and Wilkinson at 12, Mm. which I know is... I need to get them both in. I need to get... Like, the only way I could get them both in... You don't have to. You can do what you want. Uh, I'd probably have Farrell at 10. Really? Yeah. All right. Yeah, I mean, mean, Johnny... Only babysitted you. Yeah, he did. Enzo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just think... uh, Yeah, he just needs to win a World Cup, doesn't he? (laughs) He won everything else. Mm. You know, he just needs to win a World Cup and probably deserves to win. So I'd have him in at 10. And uh, I don't know, 12's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, Tulangi at his best is is is, is where I'm... I've got him at 13 because I had to get Johnny in. Are you telling me you're not putting Johnny in? No. What? No. 
Yeah, Johnny, well, Johnny was a brilliant rugby player and, you know, won us some, a lot of games, won us the World Cup final. But This is headline news, you know. No, like, this is this well, is going to the trash papers well, if no, you don't I mean, do you, it. I mean, Let's listen, do it. Listen, if Johnny picks his all-time 15, which I think he has on Ruck something or other, I mean, I don't think I make the cut. But then again, it's not personal, by the way. I mean, it's not personal. <laughs> I promise you it's not personal. I just think that if you put Farrell in that team, it, England win as well. You know? mm. So, what's the, you know, what's the beef? Um uh, I, I think Farrell at Tuolangi at Tuolangi uh, his best was unbelievable so really. you're going Tuolangi at 12 well yeah and then who's your 13 well they're interchangeable aren't they really I'm I'm a massive Will Greenwood fan okay yeah I think Will Greenwood was the brains trust of the England team could easily be the attack coach instead of Nick Evans you know if he wanted to be could have would have stood Eddie Jones a lot better to have made him attack coach than it would have done mm. anyone else. Trust me, because he was England's attack coach during, like that. during the uh, during that period. So uh, yeah, but I mean, twelve and thirteen are interchangeable. Let's go for the, this. Was the hardest thing, and I feel bad. Well, well, yeah. I mean, let's be honest. You and I are a bit lost after after nine, aren't we? Really? Yeah. But once we get past nine, it's like you know. Well, yeah, but these are dream positions. These are like ones yeah. that never were that I wish yeah. I could have well I mean there's an untouchable in Jason Robinson you please don't yeah, tell I, please, no, I've got please, him. please don't tell me you've 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 cast him aside as well I've got him at 15 have you got him at 15 or on the wing on the wing okay yeah. why have I got him at 15 then did he play the World Cup final at 15 mm-hmm. he played on the wing really I mean he, he he was wearing 15 but he played on the wing oh was he I mean they were interchangeable Josh Lucy uh, and him but yeah, yeah I would have him at on the wing okay which is I think where he scored his try didn't it yeah, I think it was. He scored so many good tries, but yes. So he's he's an untouchable. Uh, yeah, he's untouchable for anyone. Like, but I think this was the hardest position. I don't think there's been that many greats of greats. As in, like, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of. And again, so let me hit you with mine. So go, I've gone. Go, go, go Jason Robertson at 15. These are controversial. These ones. Oh, unlike you. And then I've gone Simpson Daniel. Yeah. And I've gone Jack Noel. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Do you? I like it, yeah. It's not my choice, but I like it. All right. Control chaos. Yeah. James Simpson Daniel for me. And I was, was an amazing rugby oh, player. Oh yeah. goodness, mate. He played the other I saw him in a charity game and he's got a few Zankel. Yeah. And I'm telling you that well, he's unbelievable. He me, you know, he turned me inside out and like a bloody tumble dryer at uh, at King's Own. It's not personal, so you can put well, him in. Yeah, no, we still won the game. Um big Ben Cohen. Um not the brightest tool in the box. Socially a bit awkward. Used to get, you know, used to, we used to call him Rude Boy because he was just so rude. You say something to him. Or oh, not like gangster Rude Boy, as in no, like he was genuinely no, rude. No, just rude. Like, you know, yeah. just, just be kind to people, be nice, you know. Blake wants an autograph. That's quite chaotic then. <laughs> I'd have him in. <laughs> definitely. But he's rude without realising he's being rude. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So I think he his strike rate was unbelievable. And let's be honest, if Johnny had turned right and not left and fed that ball inside that I gave to him, Ben Cohen would have been under the sticks and you'd have been saying Ben Cohen now, wouldn't you? Yeah. So, for well, that- if you say Ben Cohen, I'd say Ben Cohen, so I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm sticking with this. Okay. So you're going Jason Robinson. Who have you gone on? Jason to- Robinson. Uh, because there's not a huge amount, is there? You can't yeah. go back to Rory Underwood or Tony, whatever his and name Josh is. And Josh deserves to be in there. But yeah, I like him. <laughs> Josh was very, very good um, and used to just be... I mean, if there was a fight in the back three... He'd start he was hard. He was a military, he'd, wasn't he? He'd start it, wouldn't he? He'd start it. I thought we thought he was hard. Good-looking bloke as yeah, well. Yeah, he was quite Which tough. Which adds actually. to it. <laughs> it was quite tough. Uh, so, yeah, I'll stick with him. You've got your O3 blinkers on. This is hard, this is hard to do with you because of your history with these well, guys. Yeah, but you've but not gone Wilkinson, so that's like, no, I've not huge. Gone Wilk- well, no, I've not gone him. I've not gone Ben Kay. I've not gone- I mean, listen, I'd, yeah, I think there's a few guys now that would force their way into the side, definitely. Just not in the back row. Lawrence, lastly, before yeah. we go then, 
not that you need this platform at all to plug what you're doing, but I've seen parts of your foundation. Mm. I've been to a couple of the events and been on some of the cycles. Oh God, I'm so bad at cycling, and I again, well, like we're, compared we're, to you, we're not we're not bad. Until, we're only bad until we get fit again and train. But uh, I, I feel like I am fit. I yeah. just like there's a oh, lot of weight. A, yeah, I train every day, but there's a lot of weight on that bike. It's the hills. Anyway, it's not about me. Uh, yeah, so the, the, the rugby works is, is still going strong. Uh, I genuinely felt that where uh, you know rugby, like you, has given me everything, uh, and when you get to the end of your career, you want to give back. Um, I feel very passionately about that. You know, I believe that. You know, something was taken away from me very early on in my life. Never quite sure where the journey's going and I want to give back. I was very lucky, born into a loving household, uh, not much chaos going on, unconditional love and a belief system and a support system that anything and everything was possible. My parents opened as many doors for me as, as, as they could. I slammed most of them in their face and eventually I found a couple that worked. A lot of young people aren't born into that situation. They're born into chaotic, very difficult life circumstances and if I was born into a chaotic environment where my uh, parents were either, you know, difficult parents, zero parenting, drug addiction, violent addiction, abusive addiction, whatever, poverty, would I want someone to come and help me? The answer is, of course I would. So the charity exists, Rugby Works, to work with uh, those sorts of children, 14 to 17-year-old boys and girls. Uh, we try and change their life choices through the through the power of rugby all the way across the country, open doors, give them a support system, show them what life can look like, show them that there are a multitude of opportunities and try and change that cycle and, and make sure that they ultimately, we're all about metrics, winning or losing. At the moment, we're losing because 65% of all excluded kids, expelled young people end up in prison. 65%, too big a number. The positive side is success for us winning is about getting those young people into full-time employment and education. That's what we do at Rugby Works. And we have an 85% success rate. So at the moment, 65 go to prison, uh, 85% go through Rugby Works and end up the other side. So uh, that's why we exist. That's why I exist. Um, if I'd ask myself the question or I'd ask the listeners to think about this. If you were 14 again and you found yourself in a Celtic environment at home, would you want someone to come and help you? And the answer is, yeah, I think so. I really would want someone to come and help me. So that's why we exist. That's why I'm passionate. Um, there's no pockets in the coffin. Whatever we're, whatever money we're all gathering here, we can't take it with us. We've got to share it. We've got to bridge the equality gap. We've got to make sure that that those gaps don't exist. Um, and I would urge people to get behind it, support it. You've done that by taking part in the bike ride. Uh, and I thank you for that. And we're going to continue to uh, to grow the charity and, and make sure we exist in 10, 15, 20 years' time. Yeah, and where can they find that? It's I know it's, there's some well, it's, social uh, websites. It's rug rugbyworks.com is basically yeah. the, the charity. Delalio Rugby Works or rugbyworks.com. And, you know, it's it's incredibly rewarding. It's incredibly humbling. Uh, sometimes we have to be very grateful for what we have in life. But uh, whenever you're feeling bad, uh, whenever you're feeling low, and trust me, Jim, we all have moments in our lives mentally where we're feeling a bit down. There's always someone worse off than you. And whenever I'm in that situation where I'm feeling a bit sorry for myself, uh, things haven't quite gone my way, uh, I always take myself and go and see someone who's, you know, maybe not quite as lucky and fortunate as I am and it puts me immediately back into perspective uh, uh, it gives me the sort of pep talk and team talk that I need to uh, to be grateful for uh, for what I've got Lawrence Delalio that was absolutely amazing one of the best hours plus I've ever had so we will come and do it again one day hopefully well thanks for having me Jim and we'll get Big Marrow on there 
be the big marrow show then, won't it? You'd have well, to I'm, I'm happy. No, have, he's not having this. You'd have to change the name. No, he's, he's not having that. It's already got a big M in it. I know, I've done to, that. That's me. Just get rid of the J and the I. The big gym show, Marrow, you're not having this. The big M. Cheers, he's, Lawrence. He's going to replace us all. Oh, God, he is. He's taking over. 